we're going on now to um, the four characteristics of Scripture authority. If you do not have that outline from last time, hold up your hand, and Garth has some. It starts with this. Just keep your hand in the air, and I'll just start. I'm going to go over this by way of review very quickly until we get to where we ended last time. Um, I could say, in a way, um, this is bedrock. This is where the Christian faith starts in terms of what we believe. And uh, if we don't get this right on the authority of Scripture, everything else is going to go wrong in terms of our faith and our understanding of our faith. So it's, it's uh, tremendously important. Okay, we're still getting those outlines out. So how do we know that the Bible is God's Word? That's the question. This is review. I'm going to go quickly through this. The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. How do we know that all the words in Scripture are God's words? It claims that for itself many times. A lot of places the prophets say, thus says the Lord, and that starts with the beginning. The first of the prophets, according to the Old Testament, would be Moses himself, and then after that, uh, God says, there will be a prophet like Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth. And all the prophets to follow were that way. So God could say to Jeremiah, I've put my words in your mouth. Those were God's words that Jeremiah was speaking to the people. And Ezekiel, you shall speak my words to them, God said to Ezekiel. And so uh, those were God's words they were speaking. And we read that God speaks through the prophet in a number of cases. The word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant, Elijah the Tishbite or Deuteronomy 18, 19, my words that he shall speak in my name. So the prophets were speaking God's words, and then we talked earlier about how the prophets wrote down those words as well. In the New Testament, a number of passages indicate that all of the Old Testament writings are thought of as God's words. All scripture, all scripture, and we talked for some time about that word scripture, 51 times in the New Testament, that Greek word graphe, and it always refers to the Old Testament scriptures, except twice where it also brings in the New Testament scriptures as well. All scripture, all the books, all the words in the books that are called scripture are thought of in that special category of scripture. It's all breathed out by God, that is spoken by God. It's his words. And uh, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's a guiding work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. In other passages in the New Testament, various sections of the Old Testament are referred to as God's words. And so what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And Jesus can even go back into the narrative sections of Genesis, where it isn't specifically quoting God, it's just the narrator speaking, and say that, have you, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. God said this even though it was just the narration, it was just the historical section of Genesis 2, that uh, no, Genesis 1, that was being quoted. And, uh, and so there's an indication that Jesus took all of the Old Testament to be the very words of God. Um, the Old Testament is the commandment of God and the scripture which the Holy Spirit spoke, says Peter. So um, the New Testament also refers to some of its own writings as scripture. So um, uh, Paul's writings are classified with the other scriptures, and Paul quotes when he says, the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, that's Deuteronomy, and the laborer deserves his wages, that's from what? Remember? 
It's, it's from one of the Gospels. The laborer deserves his wages. That was a detail. Maybe we're all sleeping. It's from Luke, uh, where, where the scripture says, the laborer deserves his wages. Here, Paul is quoting Luke as scripture. And Paul says, the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. So um, we're convinced of those claims. The Bible's claims to be God's words as we read the Bible. I talked about historical evidence. That's useful. I talked about you know, looking at what the church has done in history and its care with the Bible, and that's useful. But ultimately, and we, we talk about internal consistency, and that's useful, and historical accuracy, and that's useful. But ultimately, we are persuaded and convinced, ultimately, of the Bible's claims to be God's words. As we read the Bible, as we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit speaks in and through the words of the Bible. So Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And um, as we read this, and it's happened to millions of people throughout history and around the world, you come to it, you, you, you maybe think, I have a, a high estimate of it, I've heard that it's a, a wonderful book, and maybe you've investigated some of the historical material, you find out that it's consistent and it's, and it's, it's, uh, it's confirmed by archaeological evidence and historical evidence and there's internal consistency and you find out that people's lives have been changed and many, many things, you kind of have a pretty high estimate of it, but then you read it and you say, wait a minute, this is unlike anything I have ever read. This is unlike any merely human book. These are the words of my creator speaking to my heart. And then you start to esteem it as the very word of God. And so we hear our creator's voice, we hear Jesus' voice in the words of the Bible. Um, and so the, I quoted this paragraph, a very famous paragraph from the Westminster Confession of Faith that said these other things you know, may give us a high esteem of Scripture, the, con the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole and the, how it changes lives and things but our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And I said that's different from the Mormon claim that there's what they call a burning in the bosom or an inward kind of testimony to the Book of Mormon because the Book of Mormon has all sorts of historical contradictions and things that are inconsistent and that really are not uh, proven out to be true. And those, those disprove it. I think there is a spiritual influence that happens when people read the Book of Mormon, but I think it's not, a, it's not an influence from God. It's rather, I think, uh, demonic spiritual influence that, uh, that is deceiving people and giving them some sense of, uh, hey, this, this is some spiritual material, but I don't think it's the right kind of spiritual material. Here, we have all these other arguments, but then final, and, and those are, and it's consistent with all of that and with all of life, but then ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit bears witness um, as we, through the word to our hearts. The Westminster Confession of Faith was also writing that in distinction from the Roman Catholic Church that said you believe it based on the authority of the church. And there you're trusting in human authority uh, rather than in um, the fact that it is God's word and it, it, it is self-attesting, it proves itself. And they cannot, the words cannot be proved to be God's words by appeal to any higher authority, and we talked about the fact that if it is your highest authority, then ultimately you can't go around saying, well, I believe the Bible because it seems reasonable, because then your reason is the ultimate authority. I believe the Bible because it's proven out historically. Well, then historical investigation is your highest authority. 
Ultimately, those things can give you a high estimate of it, but ultimately when you make it your absolute authority, it has to prove itself and not its proof can't be based on appeal to any higher authority. Oh, that's, uh, and then I talked about this does not imply, if all the words of scripture are God's words, um, let's see, this does not imply dictation from God. Um, we're, we're talking about the result of the process. These, the words in scripture are God's words, um, not the process itself. And so there were many processes by which uh, God communicated to the biblical authors what he wanted to be said. Hebrews 1, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Um, and uh, we talked about um, dreams and visions, and God speaking to the people on Mount Sinai, um, historical observation as the prophets watched what was going on with the armies and kings of Israel, and they recorded that, and then they were in the council of God, and he gave them understanding of the events. Um, and uh, we even talked about watching ants. Didn't we? How Solomon knew what ants, how ants were working tirelessly because he probably just watched them for a long time. And then he made up a proverb about go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. So many, many different ways the Bible came about. Luke with historical investigation in all of it, the Holy Spirit guiding. Okay, that's where we were last week, two weeks ago. So point A is all the words in Scripture are God's words. And we come to the point where we say, all right, Lord, I believe these are your words. And this is what you are speaking to me as well as to the world generally. That's good. Now, does that say anything about the truthfulness of these words? I think it says a lot because of the character of God. Because when God speaks, it's impossible for him to speak falsely. So, point B, to disbelieve or disobey any word, any word of scripture, is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. <clears throat> People are reading along and saying, well, I don't like that, I don't think I'm going to believe that, or, wow, I don't think I can believe that. We are just saying to God, God, I don't believe you. That's very serious. Jesus rebukes his disciples for not believing the Old Testament scriptures. <clears throat> he said, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he said, was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer and thus to enter into his glory? Uh, he's rebuking them. He, he said, you should in your heart not be slow but quick to believe everything that's spoken by the prophets. Now you say, that's a challenge, because there are some hard passages here, and I understand that. But our, our, our starting point has to be, these are God's words. And if there are some hard passages, then we need to seek more to understand them, not to say, just jump to the conclusion, hey, they're in error. Believers are to keep or to obey the disciples' words. Um, Jesus said, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So he's, he's kind of promising his disciples that, that as he told them the Holy Spirit would guide them into all the truth, bring to their remembrance what he had said. So then he's saying, just as they are to keep my words, so they are to keep your words. Um, 
Paul talked about the fact that Christ is speaking in me, and he has Christ's authority. It, look at this. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm speaking to you with the authority of the Lord. And if people disregard that, well, uh, you can put them under, under the discipline of the church. 2 Peter 3.2, Peter talks about the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And so Peter is talking about the apostles that Jesus appointed and saying God gave commandments through them. And so we are to obey those words. Now, uh, that comes to the truthfulness of Scripture. And uh, God cannot lie or speak falsely. And since the words of the Bible, though they're human words, are also God's words, it's appropriate to look at biblical texts that talk about the character of God's words and to apply these to Scripture. Titus 1-2 speaks of God who never lies, or in the Greek is literally the unlying God, apstustes, not lying, the non-lying God. It's part of his character not to lie. People say, can God do anything? Well, no, he can't lie. He can't sin. He can't be unjust. He can't do anything that's inconsistent with his character. And so uh, it's better to say God can do all his holy will, all that he wills to do in consistency with his character. But one of the things he cannot do is lie. God can't, he, he couldn't speak and say, today in Scottsdale, Arizona is October 6th. Because it's not. It's October 2nd. Uh, that would be false. Um, he can't speak. Where's Bob Kane? Oh, way back there. He can't. God couldn't speak and say, Bob Kane is sitting here in the front row. Because he's not. He's back there. That's just, that's a lie. God cannot. He cannot. For all of history, eternally, he cannot speak falsely. Uh, Hebrews 6.18 talks about the fact that it is impossible for God to lie in his oath and in his promise, but I think that by implication means in all of God's speech it's impossible for him to lie. Now there's been a debate, even among so-called evangelical churches or Bible-believing churches for the last 30 or 40 years about whether you really have to believe that the Bible is totally truthful in everything. And the debate, quite honestly, the debate centered around Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. Um, I, I don't know if you know this, I, I went to Fuller for a year, 1970 to 71, and they took, um, they took the word inerrance, inerrancy, or the word inerrant, out of their statement of faith that year, and it was kind of a reflection of the fact that some of their faculty members, and some of what I was hearing in the classes, uh, were uh, professors saying, well, there's this little historical detail that's not true. But it's okay, the main point is true. And I'm actually going to go through some of those with you in a week or two, some so-called hard passages and see what we think about them. Um, but I remember sitting in a New Testament class and reading the beginning of John, where John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the professor said, well, of course John the Baptist couldn't have said that because he couldn't have known yet that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I thought, what? I came to the seminary to learn the Bible. Uh, and uh, in another New Testament class, we were studying Acts, and 
Gamaliel, I'm going to look at this in more detail with you. Gamaliel talks about um, two Jewish revolutionaries um, who were named. Who were named? Judas and Thutis. And um, let me find this here. Well, anyway, I, I, I've got to come back to it and find it uh, later with you. Gamaliel stood up and talked about Judas and then Thutis, and, and the professor said, well, he got the, 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 the order wrong. It was Thutis and then Judas, but he mixed up a couple of historical facts. So what? The main point is true. You must obey God rather than men. Okay. Or I remember talking with a professor, take it outside the fuller context, uh, with a professor who was a, a believer uh, at a major university in the United States. He was a history professor. And uh, he just didn't think you had to believe that the Bible's teachings about creation were true. He just wanted to say, well, the Bible's teachings about salvation are true. And I said, well, look, it says in Hebrews 6, by faith we understand that the uh, world was created or the universe was created by the word of God. That by faith we understand that. And don't we have to believe that? Well, no, he couldn't go that far. So what people are doing is picking and choosing and saying, we can obey some of it, but not obey all of it. And if there are uncomfortable parts of it, then they start compromising. I remember also when I started to teach at Bethel College in St. Paul, uh, Jack Rogers, who was then a theology professor at Fuller, came to campus and uh, he was giving some lectures. And uh, he, I had him come into my class. And in my class, uh, he was saying, well, you just can't take those verses I was looking at these verses. You can't take those verses about God not lying and apply that to the Bible. <laughs> why, why not? Well, you just can't. That's just too simplistic. Uh, well, uh, so um, I, um, I, well, I, I left Fuller after that and uh, uh, went to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, um, but uh, I was disappointed where I thought the, the professors were going to believe that the whole of the Bible was truthful in every part of it. And I got into classes and I found that a lot of professors weren't doing that. They'd been told by their professors, perhaps, in doctoral work or something, you can't believe it. And this point, the point of the truthfulness of Scripture, that God cannot lie or speak falsely, that is probably the point at which the world wants to attack the Bible more than anything else, its truthfulness. Just yesterday we got a prayer letter from a Campus Crusade staff member at Duke, and he put on the back of it this uh, editorial in the Duke in the university newsletter. Editorial uh, from the university newspaper, second day of class, blasting the Bible, saying how it believed it claims the earth is flat and you can't believe that and they can't believe that God created these things because evolution is true. And, and, and of course, university students, maybe you've experienced some of that yourself or your children or grandchildren. You go into a secular university and there's a barrage of attacks against the truthfulness of the Bible. Why? Why? Why is that? Hmm? Oh, it could be, yeah. Maybe they're... Maybe they're they're feeling guilty about not believing it, and they're trying to argue back. Pushing back, Pushing back yeah, yeah. And uh, Kremen? Well, there's a spirit at work in the world that's opposed to the revelation of truth. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think so. I think so. If you're if you're the devil, one thing you don't want people to believe is this. You don't you want them to put it on a shelf and set it aside. Uh, and um, I mean, I'll maybe bring in this editorial from the New York Times, just filled with probably one affirmation after another after another about how evil the Bible is and how it teaches such cruel things and it's got so many falsehoods in it you can't believe it. It's just that kind of barrage of attacks against the Bible is common. And I don't think it's surprising because the enemy doesn't want us to believe God's word. If you don't believe it, then you start reading saying, I don't know if that's true, I don't know if that's true, I can't trust that, I can't trust that. And pretty soon you can't hear God's voice speaking to your heart anymore. And you just put it on your shelf and say, "Oh, nobody can, nobody can trust that," and uh, that's the way. That's the way. Uh, that's the way I think the enemy wants us to go. But that's not what God's word, God's word claims about itself. So, if God cannot lie or speak falsely, and all these words are His words, then, and I think we have to believe every bit of it. And in fact. Uh, there are passages that affirm that. All the words in Scripture are completely true and without error in any part. Completely true and without error in any part. Numbers 23:19 talks about the nature of God's speech. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. That contrasts God's speech with human speech. And again and again when people say, well, this is a human book. This is written by Apostle Paul. It was written by Peter. It was written by Isaiah. written by Moses. Uh, they were human beings. They were fallible. It has to have mistakes. Because all of us make mistakes. It's just to err is human. It's just natural that human beings make mistakes when they speak and they don't get all the facts right. And well, my answer to that is that's neglecting something. It's not only a human book written by human beings in human language, but it's also a divine book written by God, and he claims it as his own. And so it comes with the authority of God, and that's why when these passages contrast human speech with divine speech, they're so important. God is different from, other, from human beings who, who lie. And Psalm 12, verse 6, this is an amazing verse. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. If you look in the context of Psalm 12, it is talking about, well, it could be talking about today's newspaper or the, the TV news or the people you work with or meet in the grocery store. Listen to this, Psalm 12, 2. Psalm 12, 1. The faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. You know that? In the, in the, do you know that in the kind of people you relate to during the week? That people just lie easily. And don't think anything of it. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Verse 3 talks about flattering lips and tongues that make great boasts. And um, verse 8, on every side the wicked prowl, vileness is exalted among the children of men. So the whole psalm has this looking around at the world and saying people deceive, they lie, they flatter, but by contrast, Verse 6, the words of the Lord are words that are pure, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Now, 
What does that mean? A furnace on the ground. A very, very hot furnace in the ancient world. And you refine silver in a furnace to what? You purify it. And, it, and kind of the impurities, the dross, uh, floats to the surface. You skim it off. And then you let it cool down. Oh, then you do it again. Let's get a little bit more of the dross off. And it cools down. And then you heat that furnace up again. And you clear off. And all the impurities are coming to the surface. And then you get it off. How many times? Seven times. What is seven in the Bible? It's a number of, of perfection or completion. It's saying the words of the Lord are so pure, they're like silver that has been purified a, a perfect number of times. In other words, there's no impurity at all in these words. They've been perfectly purified. That's how pure they are, like this kind of silver that's been purified seven times until it's perfect. That means there, there's, no, there's no mistake in here at all. There's no mistake in the historical facts. There's no mistake in what it talks to us, how it talks to us. Um, the scientific matters in the universe, when it does say that, when it talks about constellations, when it talks about the snow or the rain, when it talks about uh, the planets, it doesn't say the earth is flat. I'd love to see that editor say, where does it say the earth is flat? Here, I'll give you my copy, find it. It doesn't say that. That's just a false accusation. It's truthful in what it says. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 119, 89. You know what I think about that? I think that verse means that um, when you and I get to heaven, that and and uh, even after Jesus comes back and all history comes to its culmination, and we're just walking around in heaven doing different things, we can go and inspect all the words of Scripture and look back, and God isn't ever going to be embarrassed by any of them. It's firmly fixed in the heavens. His word is established. And we will be able to look at the Bible and see that it was all truthful. It was all reliable. There weren't any mistakes in it. The order of Judas and Thutis in Acts 5, yeah, that was right. Sorry, New Testament professor, your facts were wrong. I remember being a sophomore year in college, I took a class in Old Testament. And uh, the professor said, well, yeah, this story about Jericho falling, you know, there's an archaeologist named Kathleen Kenyon. She's a very famous archaeologist, and she excavated Jericho, and she found that the walls did fall down suddenly, and she found a whole layer of soot and ash there. It shows apparently the city was destroyed by fire. But you know what? It was 150 years before the uh, Israelites could have come. So a uh, little mistake in the dating in the Bible, but all right. It's fairly accurate. Now, what do I do as a sophomore in college, sitting there, where this, this famous professor, George Ernest Wright, says, there's some mistakes in the, you know, it's 150 years off, but so what? Well, I didn't know what to do. I didn't, I wasn't an archaeologist. I, I didn't have access to the archaeological study. I just said, you know what? I don't know enough about that to decide, but what I know is God's word is true. And uh, probably some, there's an answer. But I, I don't know yet what it is. But uh, but uh, I'll just wait and and uh, someday I'll find out. But I'm not going to disbelieve the Bible. So what year was that? When I was a sophomore in college, that would have been 67, 68. 23 years later, 1990, Time magazine comes out with an article: score one for the Bible. 
fresh clues support the story of Joshua at the walls of Jericho. Turns out Kathleen Kenyon was looking in the wrong part of the city. And uh, University of Toronto expert in ancient pottery re-examined Kathleen Kenyon's evidence. And he said that she excavated a poorer part of the city where expensive imported pottery would have been absent. Any other pottery dug up in Jericho was common in 1400 BC. Therefore, the Bible's dating is accurate. <laughs> nice. Of course, Time Magazine can't leave it alone. Uh, most scholars think the Israelites came 14, 200 years later, and, and so, oh well. Uh, but uh, um, I just, I, that's the kind of thing that happens again and again. And we're, we're challenged, perhaps, with evidence that we don't really have any expert access to to decide, but I don't think we're ever going to be embarrassed in the end by saying, I believe the Bible. I trust it. I believe it's true. All the words are true and without error in any part. You can get to heaven and look back, and God isn't going to take, you know, when Jesus comes back, he's not going to bring a big bottle of white out and sort of change a few of those words. That were... <laughs> Oops, sorry, got that, got that data wrong. No, it's not going to be that way. It's, it's firmly fixed in the heavens. Every word of God proves true. I, actually, in recording that uh, broadcast with Dr. Dobson in, in Focus on the Family, I talked about this, this verse, every word of God proves true, and that Hebrew word imra means the, not just the ideas or the thoughts, it's every single word of the text. Every word proves true, and that was why it's so troubling to find 3,686 examples of words that the TNIV changed because they were unpopular in the culture today taking out words for man and father and brother and son and he, him, and his. When everybody's no, those are simple words. Everybody's known for, for, for centuries what those Greek and Hebrew words mean. Hebrew, Greek, pater means father. It doesn't mean parent. And Hebrew, av, means father, not parent in singular. But they changed it because it was unpopular to have so many examples of the word father or the word man in the Bible. But I was saying on Dr. Dobson's broadcast, and I expect this will stay in the, in the broadcast as they edit it, every word of God proves true. We don't want to mess with any single word. And for the three years I was on the translation committee for the English Standard Version, again and again, we came back to saying we have to translate every single word in the original accurately. Our goal is not just to give the general idea, our goal is not just to paraphrase, and perhaps paraphrases have a value, the message, the New Living Translation, where they're just kind of giving an interpretation. But don't read them as your everyday Bible, because their philosophy is not word for word. And there were a number of times in the committee where we'd say, now wait a minute, we've got that verse translated, but what about this word in Greek? We didn't render that word with anything in English. There's no, and some, you know, sometimes someone would say, well, yeah, the comma shows that well, that's what that de does. It shows a transition. Okay, the comma does that, or beginning of a sentence. Or sometimes three words are rendered by one, or one word is rendered by three. But you've got to get the sense of every word into the translation. That was our goal, a translation where you can trust every word because of a respect for the very words of God. Every word of God proves true. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, said Jesus, but my words will not pass away. Just like God's word in general, so Jesus' teachings, Jesus' words as they're recorded in Scripture, they will not pass away. They last forever. We can trust them forever. From the time I was... Oh, yeah, I had another thing that happened. Freshman year of college. I don't know if I told you this or not. First week, I'm 18 years old, I arrive at Harvard as a freshman, I look across the street and there's a Baptist church right across from my dorm. So I think, all right, Sunday morning I go to the Baptist church, and my roommate Jerry went with me. Go over to the Baptist church, pastor's preaching a sermon, he reads through some verses in Matthew, talking about where Jesus is talking about, I don't know what he's talking about, but, but then, then, he, uh, then he skips some verses on hell and judgment. And then he goes on and reads some more. And he didn't say a word about those verses on hell or judgment in his sermon. So Monday morning, between classes, when I didn't have any class, I just thought, I walk over and just knock on his door. So I did. <laughs> and I said, uh, hi, I was here yesterday. Oh, glad to see you. Yeah. And uh, I said, uh, you skipped these verses in Matthew when you were reading and when you preached on it. Why'd you skip those? You know what he said? Are you a freshman? <laughs> I said, yes. He said, well, you've got a lot to learn. Well, I never went back to that church, obviously, um, nor did my roommate. Um, but that was, just, that was just this idea that there are some things that we don't like, so we'll just leave them out. We won't speak on them. We won't preach on them. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. Every word of God is completely true and without error in, every, in any part. We need to trust it all. We need to trust it all. Oh, heaven, why does it say heaven and earth will pass away? No. <laughs> huh, I hadn't thought about that recently. <laughs> um, I think that um, when the Bible talks about time when Jesus will come back and the present form of this earth will pass away. The, the evil in it will be destroyed, and I think there'll be judgment on a lot of the works of it. Um, I, think there, I think this earth is going to continue forever, but it'll be transformed. So that it, in this form, it'll pass away. And heaven, um, I, I am... I am not sure, and I need some more time to look at that. It either just means the star and the skies, the, the, the sky and the stars as we see them will be transformed, or the place where God dwells will be changed and transformed. Um, there'll be a large change in those such that Jesus can talk about it being passed away. But his words are never going never to change. So, something like that. Moreover, God's words, interesting. God's words are the ultimate standard of truth. The ultimate standard of truth. And so, um, I don't know if you can all, I'll just draw this diagram on the board. And we haven't quite worked out where to put it yet. But if you are standing here wondering, how do I know what is true? and you're looking for a standard of truth, um, people have different standards. Some think the New York Times is their standard of truth. 
or CBS News or uh, the latest uh, rock music or whatever. People set their life by it. But, um, and others, more sophisticated maybe, have their human intellect or reason or philosophy or historical investigation. But Jesus said that the ultimate standard of truth is God's word. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And he uses the Greek word aletheia, a noun that means truth. It's not the adjective aletheis or aletheinos, one of the two adjectives that mean true. He could have said, your word is true. That's what I've been saying for the last 15 or 20 minutes. But he said more than that. He said, your word is truth. And I think that means that it's the highest standard of truth. And everything else we know or think we know has to be tested by that. Now, I need a volunteer. No, I'm not going to tell you. All right, Vicki. What day were you born? The date. Hmm? Well, you don't have to tell the year. January 2nd, 1954. Okay. Pretty sure? You're pretty sure about that? Why? What city? It's a document. And you've seen a birth certificate. Huh? Yeah. January 2nd, 1954. That's pretty good. Birth certificates ever have mistakes on them? They, occasionally they do. Oh, how do you know yours doesn't? You trust your mom, right? <laughs> That's good. The mom's ever. Uh... <laughs> no. Never, never. Your mom never. <laughs> your mom's still alive. Yeah. But, you know, maybe Vicky. <laughs> So you're pretty sure that you were born January 2nd, 1954, but not absolutely sure, because it's just possible that more information could come along to show that you're wrong. Possible. Maybe, yeah. Not likely, but it's possible. And most of the things we know, we have to say, yes, I'm quite confident of that, but maybe something else will come along and show me that I was wrong, even things that we're pretty sure about. There's that little tiny one-tenth of one percent, you know, question. The only way around that, yeah, the only way around that is if you know everything. Isn't it? If you know all facts for all history, for all eternity, if you know all facts, then you know no new fact is going to come along and show you to be wrong with what you thought. But Vicky doesn't know all facts for all history in the whole universe, nor do any of us. So how can we ever be certain about anything? Well, one way is to know all facts, but there's another way to have certain knowledge. And that is, if you know someone who knows all facts 
for all history, for the whole universe, and that person speaks truthfully and tells you things. Am I making sense? And that's really what we have with the Bible. Um, God knows all the details of all the facts of history for all eternity, for the whole universe. No new information is going to come up and you say, oh, I never knew that. No, no new information is ever going to surprise God. He knows everything that has ever happened or ever will happen forever, and he speaks truthfully to us. So in some sense, I, I, in a very real sense, I have more confidence in the truthfulness of the Bible because it's spoken to me by a truthful, omniscient author. I have more confidence in the truthfulness of the Bible than I do in knowing the day I was born. Or anything else that I thought I remembered but forgot. Or didn't remember accurately. And that's why I think Jesus is right in saying your word is truth. It's the standard by which we test all other things. People who neglect that inevitably go astray. And I have seen it in churches, I've seen it in Christian colleges, and among faculty members, where they, they, they start to listen to an expert in anthropology, or an expert in psychology, or an expert in, I don't know, some other field, who says, well, this part of the Bible can't be true. And they don't have the knowledge of that field themselves. They just start to believe this expert, and they think that expert knows more than God does. Just like trying to believe the expert in archaeology, right? But she was wrong. Why do you believe the expert in archaeology rather than the God who knows everything and speaks truthfully? So in that sense, God's words are the ultimate standard of truth. Number four, might some new fact ever contradict the Bible? Should we be worried? I, I saw somebody the other day who I saw somebody, uh, the other, uh, somebody told me, or recently told me that Colossae, where Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, it's never been excavated. And this guy was trying to get together money for an archaeological excavation of Colossae. Does that make you nervous? Maybe they'll discover something that proves that Paul's letter was wrong to the Colossians? Nah. Or these tablets, these historical tablets from Ebla that haven't all been translated, and they talk about the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Are you nervous? If they translate more of those, maybe it'll show that some of the narratives in Genesis are wrong. Do we get nervous about that? I don't think we should. I think we should always encourage more investigation and more research and just more finding of facts. Never being afraid that new facts are going to contradict the Bible, but always being confident that if they're rightly understood, they won't contradict the Bible. Every true fact is something that God has known already from all eternity and something that therefore cannot contradict God's speech in Scripture. God knew about those excavations of Jericho. He knew exactly the day and the hour and the minute that the walls fell and the city was burned. He knew about all the pottery and the unused bushels of grain that were sitting there yet, showing that the city was destroyed very quickly. He knew about all that. And uh, no new discovery is going to contradict the Bible. Then, we have to say one more thing on the nature of Scripture as true. And that is, written Scripture is our final authority. The final form of Scripture is its written form, and it is authoritative in this form. 
Some people say, well, the Gospels were passed down in oral tradition, where people passed along, passed along sayings of Jesus and remembered them before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote them down. I say, fine, maybe they did. But our authority is what is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not your guess at what that oral tradition said. And other times, uh, you'll take a New Testament class in university and they'll say, well, this is the situation in the church that Matthew was writing to. And so now we're going to reinvent that situation and then we're telling you what Matthew was really trying to get at, not what he said. Or, uh, we were in a church once, Margaret and I were in a church in another country, actually, and the pastor was preaching through the Lord's Prayer. He's going phrase by phrase, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But you know what? In a few phrases, he was changing them and making them say other things. And I looked at my New Testament, didn't have, looked at my Greek New Testament, couldn't get that meaning out of it. I thought, this is very strange. So I asked him afterward, oh, uh, what translation were you preaching from? He said, well, here's my own translation. And... Um, I, I was translating the Greek back into Aramaic. Jesus actually spoke Aramaic. So now I'm translating it back into what Jesus really said. See, what he's saying is that Matthew got it wrong. Matthew translated it wrong or recorded it wrong. He's saying, I could do a better job. I'm getting back behind what the Bible said to the original words of Jesus in the language he spoke, and I'm going to tell you those. Well, how did he know what those original words were? You see, that's just his guess. And his guess has to include the idea that Matthew got it wrong, who was with Jesus the whole time, and who spoke Aramaic better than this guy did, I guarantee. <laughs> it was his native language. But that just happens again and again in scholarship. Oh, well, Paul was a rabbi, and if we here's what he really should have said. Or if Paul had a little longer to think about this, this is what he would have said. I'm arguing in print with a guy who's saying that now, a man named William Webb. All of those things try to say, oh, the authority is not the Bible, it's what went into the Bible. Or the authority is not the Bible, it's what's coming after the Bible. And I say, no, 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 no. It's the written words of Scripture that are final authority, and they're right, they're accurate, they're truthful. They are the words of God, and that's what we are to trust. Now, let me tell you, this is just foundational for our faith. If we don't get this right, we're going to go astray eventually. I know there are things that are hard to understand. I know there are things that we sometimes question, but we should never disbelieve it. And uh, if we question it, we should submit to the fact that it's God's word. I haven't been watching the clock. That's one thing I didn't have here. I'm five minutes beyond. Let me pray and we'll close. Lord, we thank you for this time. I'm sorry, Lord, I went over. I didn't even know. Um, calm our hearts now and uh, encourage us in the belief in the total truthfulness of your words. Thank you for your word. Amen.